Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact or donate. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends or your network. Our guest in this episode is Curtis Sargent. Curtis is the co-facilitator for the 2414 Coalition. He founded Zoomay and is the author of the book, The Only One. Well, we have a conversation in and around movements. So when we're talking about movements, we're talking about a movement of disciples, making disciples and churches, planting churches that multiplies generations deep and leads to the kingdom of God coming to earth as it is in heaven. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. So here's Curtis. Curtis Sargent, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Yeah. So, you know, what were some of the things that you learned as you served overseas uh, that still carry uh, with you today? Well, that's a broad question because most of my life uh, was overseas. I grew up actually in Asia. So I assume you mean from when I started working among unengaged people groups or yeah, sure let's uh I mean you we could talk a little bit I think you know you know especially with all nations the work that I'm I'm doing is leading a missions agency um, there's also a lot of people raising uh, people on the fields um, and so I think we could get into some of that too I think that would be really helpful as you grew up, uh, overseas, um, what was that formation like for you and what was helpful to keep you focused on Jesus throughout your life? So, um, I do think there are some kind of advantages that come from growing up in a culture other than your passport country. I think there's probably a greater motivation to be in a keen observer of people and mm-hmm. situations, maybe a little less, you know, is, is assumed in terms of your own expression of yeah. your, you know, your thoughts or whatever. So just the observational um, aspects, I think, are helpful, maybe a little less prone to assuming other people think or feel or act the way that you do. Yeah. You know, so I think that's also helpful, you know, in life in general. Um, And those would be obviously harder to pick up if you lived in a mono-ethnic, you know, just living in an area where everybody is, has a lot of similarities. Yeah. Is there a way that you found helpful now as you're living in, in the States um, and you're with some people that maybe make more assumptions about what other people believe um, as they maybe focus a little bit, they're a little ethnocentric um, just because they haven't had that experience with others is there a helpful way to engage uh, people so they don't assume what others are thinking? Anytime you can either identify or 
create um, dissatisfaction in people mm. and discovering it is a lot um, safer option than creating it. Yeah. Since nobody likes it, <laughs> we're in the saddle because, um, you know, dissatisfaction in, in a lot of ways is a prerequisite for change. Hmm. If somebody's not dissatisfied with the way things are, they have no motivation to change. So yeah. um, identifying that and then teasing it out. Hmm. Um, and of course, the, you know, in any given instant, you always have the potential tool of making unexpected statements, you know? Yeah. Um, anytime you say something that's counterintuitive to people or contradicts, you know, unexamined assumptions, it'll get their attention and at least opens the possibility for maybe a deeper level of discussion. Yeah. So. And that's good. That's always leading to a, a deeper level of discussion. Uh, I think it's really helpful in the way that we interact with others. Because if we're sitting sitting back, um, if we both assume um, we know what the other believes, sometimes we don't do that job and that work of discovering uh, what each other thinks and believes. And then we don't do the job of asking questions that would further uh, a deeper conversation uh, and a deeper conversation towards Jesus and who he is and what it actually means to live in the kingdom of God. What was your direction and your journey towards unengaged people groups? So um, the summer after my freshman year in high school, I guess. And so at that time, um, my parents were serving in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. Um. I was at a, an all-night prayer meeting with some of my friends and had a very clear call to the unengaged, although that term was not yet in use yeah. you know, at that time. And so from that point on, you know, that's been mm -hmm. the, the focus kind of, of, of my life is, um, you know, trying to eliminate. Yeah. <laughs> existence of unengaged peoples yeah and so you know i my assumption at that point was that i would be serving in restricted access environments which i did for many mm -hmm. many years and so you know trying to do preparation in terms of education and experience that would allow me mm -hmm. to um you know get a job in those environments and and work and serve in those environments. And so, you know, from the rest of high school and college and then into, you know, serving, that was sort of the, the focus. So, I mean, even when I was in college, I put together, you know, a multi-state um, conferences on tent making in restricted access areas. Wow. And, you know, I mean, things like that. <laughs> yeah. And then all of my professional preparation was in that direction. Wow. You know, and as you, you stepped into that and you landed in in country, um, when, when you were looking for open and hungry people for Jesus, um, did you find that people were open and receptive um, and that they were hungry for something more and different spiritually, or did you find a, a big resistance at the beginning? Um, well, we didn't see a lot of fruit at the very beginning, but it wasn't necessarily because of spiritual hardness. I think, yeah. you know, there were, were other factors like not being good in the language yet. You know, yeah. they have their own, their own language, not reduced to writing. So learning it was, you know, a little bit of a process and then some just cultural barriers more than necessarily hardness of heart. Um, but, you know, the wonderful thing about unengaged people groups is the blank slate effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, maybe that there's less of that among Muslim unengaged groups. 
Um, but other than Muslim unengaged groups, almost any other, um, you know, belief system, if they're an unengaged group, you really do have to a very large degree of blank slate in terms of, uh, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Yeah. And, um, so, you know, in, in some senses, it's the easiest kind of work there is, <laughs> you know, yep. you get to make, you're not building on someone else's mistakes. You get to make your own mistakes. <laughs> right. I don't know. Maybe it betrays some of my worldview, but, um, I, I really think that, um, among all unengaged groups that there is a degree of innate openness mm -hmm. in terms of hunger, at least. Yeah. It may not be specifically openness to the gospel, but in terms of openness to, you know, knowing something's missing. Yep. Uh, I think that's there in almost every group. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I like to, to mention and talk about is figuring out what is, what is the good news for the people that you're engaging, the people that you're talking to, you know, Jesus is good news to everyone. Um, and he wants to speak specifically to people um, and in their circumstance and what they're going through and what is good news. Um, so what are some of the, the cultural issues that you were grappling with and dealing with as you were walking into that situation and how did you engage those cultural issues? Yeah, um, I, I guess the the people group that we were targeting, um, essentially their worldview was animistic. Mm -hmm. So you know there there aren't big worldview issues to overcome in yeah. working with animistic peoples, and the the um, I don't know biggest advantage culturally was um, this people group um, was definitely the dominant people group. I, I served on a large island yeah. for the first first five years, and they were definitely the dominant people group on the island. And they were just known for extreme laziness, being <laughs> ill-tempered, being, you know, unreliable being ha having a tendency to you know violent outbursts to be you know all of these things yeah and so if you're in that situation a life changed by christ is shocking mm -hmm. you know yeah. the, the contrast is so extreme that you know, there, there's no de debating it. There's no arguing with it. It's just what happened to that person. Yeah. So once you start getting some fruit, uh, there, there's no difficulty, you know, quote, selling the product, yeah. you know, <laughs> because it's like, you know, do you want this life or do you want this life? Everybody yeah. would love to, to be and have around them people who are, loving you know yeah concerned patient you know wow. like expressing all the fruit of the spirit and so the just the contrast is so sharp mm. um and then in our case we also had a, another advantage was that the um cultural environment had been very stable for uh, a number of centuries yeah. And then was suddenly going through a dramatic change just as we, we arrived. And so that creates opportunities as well, because, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, when people are undergoing a significant, you know, transition, they're more open to other transitions, yeah. including, you know, consideration right. of uh, following Christ. So yeah. um, that was an additional advantage in our situation yeah and that's a huge advantage i mean when my wife and i were in the middle east and we were working with syrian refugees coming out of a war zone and and coming out of that situation um, we saw arab muslims open for the first time that and they were ready and open to say hey 
I want to change. I want to do something. And Jesus was really the answer and the hope that they were looking for. Um, I remember early on while we were working with Syrian refugees and we saw a number of them start to say yes to Jesus. They were having dreams. There's all sorts of things that were happening. Uh, we were sitting with some some workers that were in the Middle East that have been in country 20 years. And they looked at each other and they said, this is what we've been praying for for 20 years. It's starting to happen now. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that we often don't think about um we think, hey, we want to look at the fruit. We want to look at people coming to Christ. We want to look at uh, the things that are are exciting and happening. But there's been so many people that have been laying the groundwork of prayer um, and and yearning for something to happen and asking God to move in that space and breaking up hard grounds. Um, what's the what's the importance of prayer? and movements and moves of, of God around the world. Yeah, that's one of those things that, you know, it's impossible to prove causality, but yeah. um, the correlation is dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so um, I would say currently I'm connected with a coalition called 2414. I'm mm-hmm. one of the co-facilitators of that. And so we're tracking and working with about 1,400, what we call level five movements and above. So these are ones that are, you know, hundreds of churches. Yeah. As an entry point. And I'm not aware, at least, of any of those that started apart from serious prayer. Yeah. And there's, you know, at least two aspects of that. One is prayer from those outside the group where the movement starts. Mm -hmm. But then also a huge factor is the prayer of the new believers as they come to faith within the group. Yeah. Just how strong the the culture of serious prayer is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I mentioned that through elementary school, I grew up in South Korea. And of course, the South Koreans are, you know, well known for their commitment to prayer. So every morning I would be wakened by the church bells ringing at 4 a.m. And I could look out my window and watch all the people walking to the churches for prayer. Wow. And, you actually um, had to do 4 a.m. I lived in Korea for two, South Korea for two years and we had 5 a.m. prayer. So, man, yeah, they're, they they're not as stopped. they're not as uh, <laughs> yeah, prayer warriors anymore. In the 60s, <laughs> whenever you were there, they got yeah. stopped. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess the 60s, they were harder core. They were harder core. <laughs> um, we very much include not only our speaking to God but are listening to God. Mm. And uh, that's not true in the global church, I don't think. Yeah. In some ways, it permeates every disciple's life because of the constant focus or um, intentionality or attentiveness. Mm. You know, and so... In, in some ways, you could say that prayer was the defining characteristic of a movement life. Wow. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that hearing, hearing from God and listening to God, um, obeying him is so key and so important. Um, and that's one of the things that I've found that I think in America we're starting to catch up with, um, but we... Uh, we're a little bit behind in that. Um, and as you you moved uh, to the states, what what were some of the things that you were finding that were a little different from um, the the new believers um, in unengaged people groups, the uh, people living out their faith, um, and then just life in you know American Christendom? Yeah, um, some of those things that you asked about um you know at the very beginning of this Mm. our discussion 
where there's just not an awareness that there are other possibilities, that there are other patterns, that there are other options, that yeah. there are you know, other expressions of living out our faith. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know what percentage, you know, of people who claim to be believers in the States, you know, would, would fall into this category. But I think many, many are absolutely serious mm -hmm. about their faith, but they are not aware of all that the Lord intends for them or desires mm -hmm. for them or desires from them. Yeah. They're doing what they've been asked. They're doing the best they know. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to fault them. And that goes for Christian yep. leaders as well. Yeah. They're, you know, they're doing all that they know. They want to do the best they can. Yeah. Et cetera. But they're not aware, you know, that there is more. Mm. And um, so, you know, part of the problem or the challenge is how to help them come to that awareness without alienating them yeah because you know it can it can feel demeaning or you know yep. i don't know just you know negative in some way to imply that they could be doing differently or you know they could be seeing more fruit or they could be seeing better quality fruit or et cetera et cetera how to communicate that without alienating people because mm -hmm. it's, it's like what I mentioned earlier about it's safer to find dissatisfaction than to create dissatisfaction. Yeah. yeah. And, and this is a great example of that. So if you find people who just think there must be more, yep. I want more those people, it's quite easy to get them, you know, living a different sort of right. kingdom life. But if it's people who aren't feeling that they, they may not respond well, you know, yeah. at the suggestion that there could be more. Yeah. So um, another big thing is, um, and this isn't entirely like a North American centric thing, but, the U.S. is toward one end of a spectrum, mm -hmm. but places that have high urbanization also tend to go this direction is their um, use of time or their, their conception right. of time and um, how to steward time and how mm -hmm. to prioritize time. And it's um, probably exacerbated by the North American tendency to, to separate the secular and the sacred. Yeah. Right. So we tend to, to divide, yeah. you know, life into these different categories rather than having a more holistic, you know, type of conception of, of the various parts of our, our lives. But between those two things, it's a common reaction for North Americans who learn about kind of a movement approach yeah. to, to say, I don't have time to do that. Yeah. So they're, they're viewing, you know, there's X number of hours for this X number of mm. hours for that. As right. opposed to how do I live as a kingdom citizen mm. in every aspect of my life, yeah. 24 hours a day. Yeah. And um, so then, yeah, they just see that differently. And that's often a challenge to people because it is a 24 7 yep. commitment. Yeah. You know? it is. And so that I think that's a significant challenge here. Um, terminology. Mm -hmm. And this is true in any place, but it's definitely true here in North America. Yeah. That when when we use words like, you know, church or disciple or, you know, pick another couple of dozen words, um, 
what they're hearing and what we're intending yeah. are often significantly different. And that, yeah. that's just a, you know, universal <laughs> aspect of challenge of communication in yep. any context, yeah. but relate because of the strong Christian heritage here right. in North America, those spiritual terms in particular can mm. often pose a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. So if you would define a disciple of Jesus, what is a disciple of Jesus um, and how can we make disciples? Yeah. So um, I, I don't have a, you know, off the shelf um, <laughs> definition, but it would be someone who has, you know, given their life completely to God and is characterized by, you know, living in obedience to him. Yep. So it's, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, as we're making disciples, there are, I do have a list, you know, a literal list of things that I'm trying to make sure every disciple is equipped in. So that's, that's not a definition, right. but it's more of a description of how to go about mm. making disciples. Yeah. So if that's helpful, I think in terms of aspects like trying to um, equip every disciple to be a contributor and not merely a consumer. Yep. And so particularly we look at four aspects related to that is I need to make sure every disciple is equipped to be a self-feeder in regard to scripture. Mm -hmm. So interpreting and applying scripture. Yep. And this is true even if they're non-literate. Um, second would be prayer. And so again, including both the listening aspects and the, you know, the speaking aspects. Yep. And the many different ways prayer can be used. So a lot of people don't think of it that way but there are many uses for prayer so for example teaching so jesus does this at lazarus tomb he says father i thank you that you hear me i know that you always hear me but i say this for the benefit of those who are here listening mm -hmm. so he's very intentionally modeling how you teach people about the character and nature of god mm -hmm by how you pray in their presence yeah now is that something we always do no but that's one of many uses for prayer that people don't think of you know a lot um so the third aspect would be body life so mm. you know things like sensitizing them to the the one another's in scripture yeah you know or the how god designed us as a body with the spiritual gifts mm -hmm. and all the implications of that and so on. And then finally, how to respond well to persecution and suffering. Yeah. So there's more in scripture about how God develops us through persecution and suffering mm -hmm. than about how he develops us through his word or through prayer or through yeah. body life. <laughs> wow. There, yeah. there, there are many, many, many passages that discuss that and talk about the specific benefits that are to come from those mm. and are very explicit in terms of God's intention for how he wants us to respond to those things. Yeah. We're guaranteed they will happen if we're serious in following him. And so it only makes sense that we equip people to be aware of the benefits, the intentions mm. and the, uh, you know, the desires on yeah. God's part on how we're to respond. Yeah. And those are massive in our growth. So that self-feeding aspect and then helping when we're talking about making disciples, I like to talk in terms of giving them a pair of eyeglasses that have yeah. two lenses. One of the lenses would be the network of ongoing relationships that we have, you know, friends, yep. family, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, all of those, yeah. and how to steward those over time yep. for the kingdom. And then the other lens being everybody else with an emphasis on the least, the last, and the lost, 
and how to respond and steward opportunities there because there are different principles and practices that are typical in those two worlds. They're very different, but they're both important because one is how the gospel travels farthest. The other is how it travels fastest. You know, one is focusing more on the the long-term development and so on. And so every disciple needs to be equipped to, to live out their faith in both of those contexts, reaching both types of people. And so that's, that's a key thing. And then just some of the patterns, you know, like the one we've already discussed about um, obeying and passing on what we receive. So that has all kinds of implications. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, one of those fractals that it, you know, it characterizes how I read my Bible mm-hmm. every morning, how, how how I am praying, and then corporate aspects in my spiritual family, in the larger network, yeah. you know, in our city or our state or our country, and in their yep. applications individually and corporately in every aspect of life at every level in every application. And so that kind of look, look back, look up, look forward pattern occurs all over the place. And so Mm -hmm. there there are certain patterns like that, um, that I want to make sure to drill deeply, you know, into, into people. And um, so, yeah, I've got this, you know, list of things that I want to equip yeah, every disciple in, and in fact, the the most challenging of all of those is the training cycle itself. You know, the model, assist, watch, and lead, yep. and all the fine points of that, because that's you know kind of a an art more than a, a science, and um, so yeah. it takes people a long time to really become expert at that in that generational you know, aspect is the defining characteristic of movements. So, um, yeah, that's the most challenging, you know, yeah, that model assist watch leave is, is, uh, it is definitely a challenging one. Um, what advice would you give? I had a, a, a couple of friends that live in Chicago and they are, have been doing some discovery Bible study, uh, with their friends. Uh, they, they had a, you know, some, pre-believers, some non-believers within Discovery Bible Studies. Someone found Jesus. He wanted to go start with with some of his friends um, that don't know Jesus yet, and he's doing it with them. And their pastor uh, realized, hey, they're doing something great, um, and I like what they're doing. So he said to them, okay, you're going to be in charge of our discipleship uh, and outreach part of our church. Um, are there any tools or things that those pe- people can use when they're thinking about uh, church community that want to live out a life of discovery, discipleship, obeying what, what Jesus tells them, and then passing along? Do you have any tools or anything that, that they can use to help facilitate that? Um, a couple of ones that come to mind. One would be there's an introductory kind of online training that's mm-hmm. uh, designed to be self-facilitated called Zume. Yeah. So it's Z-U-M-E dot training would be the URL. And um, it can provide a nice little package to introduce people. Yeah. And um, there are a lot of different ways you can use it. It's, kind of native context is 10 two-hour sessions. Um, But there are, you know, a multitude of other kind of delivery options or venues that people can use. So that would be one tool that I would suggest that's readily accessible and it's available in most major languages. Wow, that's great. It's currently in 38 languages with a number of others in Mm. development. Um, A second one would be 
um, I, that I, I sort of wrote a book mm-hmm. as a soft indirect introduction to movement for North American believers Yeah, to try to um, kind of create that dissatisfaction without alienating anybody. <laughs> and yeah. um, so the book is called The Only One. Mm-hmm. And you can get the ebook version for free at theonlyonebook.com. Great. And um, that might be a resource that would be helpful. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, people are not going to find anything in there that's going to alarm them. <laughs> for example, now. Um, Dallas Theological Seminary is requiring it for every student in the seminary. Wow, you know, that's amazing. So that's great. It's the you know they're known to be you know pretty conservative and yeah and all of that. So um, you know hopefully people aren't going to find anything in there that they consider heretical, but <laughs> um, it serves as a kind of a soft introduction. Mm, that's really good. And I think that's really helpful for a lot of people. And I think that's one of the things that people have really been looking for are soft introductions to get people um, thinking something different to get a little bit of a paradigm shift um, is really helpful to say, hey, we could actually live out our faith in a a new form or a different way, but it's very authentic to Jesus, his life, his teachings, his commands. And it's not, you know, something that's watered down. It's actually more of a kingdom life than sometimes we actually get to engage in. And I think part of that is that sacred secular divide that you're talking about, that it actually then starts to integrate all of life uh, into the kingdom and into the sacred. Um, You know, I'd love to just as you talk about uh, about movements in 2414, level five movements, I don't know if everybody would would know what you're talking about. So can you just define that quickly of what we're talking yeah. about with movements? So basically, when we're talking about a movement, we're talking about um, at least fourth generation churches and at least four streams within three years mm. from from when you start. Um, and so you could have a hundred thousand churches without hitting that, you know, if they're yeah. all first and second generation, you know, churches or whatever, yeah. third. Um, so that's what we're using as the definition for movement. And so this um, scale one on the scale essentially means you're trying to use movement approaches among a certain population yeah people group place so that's level one some you're just trying level two would be you're seeing some first generation fruit and maybe a little bit of second generation fruit that would be a level two and then we have subdivisions you know within level three would be you're seeing some consistent second level second generation fruit in maybe some third generation level four would be you're con- you're seeing consistent third generation reproduction in maybe some fourth generation mm-hmm. level five would be you're seeing regular sustained fourth generation level six is that it's f- fully um you know fully indigenous leadership yeah. And, you know, at every level. And then level seven is that it's um, consistently catalyzing other movements, mm-hmm. you know, in other places. How many so, out, out of those level five uh, movements that you've been tracking about 1400, you said, yeah. or, um, how many of those have been catalyzed by previous movements? Yeah, we don't know exactly, but our estimate is at least 80%. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, movements, catalyzing movements, it's the same thing as churches catalyzing new churches uh, down to generation. Now they're catalyzing movements. Um, That's right. That's pretty exciting that movements are saying, hey, let's look 
outside of ourselves and continue to different people groups uh, around the world. Uh, that's really cool. And I mean, we're seeing that a little bit um, in all nations where, you know, our, I mean, our level six movement, say, is definitely going out. And I mean, they're in, I don't know, maybe about eight other people groups at the moment trying to catalyze movement and working towards that um, in their area of East Africa. Um, and so it's, I mean, it's something where we're always looking up and looking out. Um, and I think that's a, a principle that we should all live with is, is, you know, as you said, you know, look back, look up, look forward. We're looking to see what God has, is telling us and teaching us and then looking to see where he's moving and what he wants us to do moving forward. Um, and, you know, and for you, as you're looking at movement and multiplication, generational growth, where did that come into your story and how did you get involved with movement and yeah so back when we were working on that people group on that island there were about um six point you know some million people and uh among that people group there were um, three, you know, three churches, two of them were five members and three members. Hmm. And, um, then the other was a little bit bigger, but was not, you know, reaching out to anybody. And so, um, and back then there were no telephones. So we, you know, we had no communications options other than face-to-face -face, yeah you know, and then the transportation development was virtually nil so basically i'm going everywhere on foot or ox cart <laughs> you know wow covering thirty-four thousand square kilometers wow and um so when i was still in the early language learning um, so I, I spoke Mandarin, which was the national language, but very few people there at that time spoke Mandarin on that mm -hmm. island. So I was trying to find from the few people who did speak Mandarin, use them as language helpers to try to yeah. learn this local language. And anyway, I was out in this village one day and um, looking for a child to try to talk to because I found it way less intimidating than trying to talk to an adult at that level of language development. And so there weren't any kids. There's only this old lady. So I go up and I say, you know, um, you know, grandmother, how old are you? And mm. she said, I'm 97 years old. And that, that, that's like here saying you're 140. It's like nobody knows that long. You <laughs> wow. know, it's yeah. miraculous. And so I said, wow, that is really old. And um, I had pretty well shot my vocabulary by that point. So um, <laughs> she picked it up. And anyway, I well, to shorten the story considerably, I learned several new words trying to, you know, have this conversation with her. But at the end of the conversation, I uh, um, was looking for a way out because I needed to get someone to write yeah. down all the new vocabulary I had just learned, <laughs> you know. And um, so just in case, I always would have Chinese language tracts with me. Their language wasn't reduced to writing. But um, if somebody speaks Mandarin, there's a chance they can read. And so, you know, I pull out this tract and she says, I can't read. And so I said, and your son, and she says, he can't read. She said, nobody here can read. And it just kind of hit me mm. right there. Okay. Other than the, her age, this lady is typical of this people group. Yeah. And I'm standing here face to face with her and I'm absolutely helpless mm. to share the gospel. And, you know, she's going to probably die next week. You know, you know how much longer <laughs> yeah. can she live? Yeah. You know, 
And so I was like, oh, okay, eventually I'll learn the language. And then I can share with people like this. And then I started doing a little self-evaluation. It's like, okay, let's say every single day I led a person to faith. And I did that from now till I was old enough to retire. You know, we're yeah. probably talking 15,000 plus, you know, less than 20 for sure, less than 20,000 new believers among 6 million plus. Mm. And, you know, guess what? I have never over any significant period of time, average leading one person every day to the Lord yeah. in any language. Yeah. I didn't even pick a language. It doesn't <laughs> matter. I've yeah. never done it. And I'm not likely to start, you know, being able to maintain that level of fruitfulness. And so then I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is horrible. This is an absolutely impossible task. Yep. And then, you know, started thinking about multiplication. And it's like, well, what if every year I led somebody to the Lord and then every year they led somebody to the Lord and then mm -hmm. it's so, you know, the old doubling kind yep. of thing. Well, the people group would be reached in, you know, 15 years. Yep. I could do two more people groups. Yeah. It's like, that's doable. And then I started thinking about churches and, you know, I realized, you know, making disciples, is connected with planting churches and that's harder than just leading somebody to the Lord. And yep. What would that look like? And so on anyway, started playing these things out and um, realized the only way that task was doable in my lifetime was to multiply. And mm -hmm. we were the first people on that Island since 1949 that had residence permits to live on that island. Yeah. And, you know, and we had, I had nobody to confer with because we didn't have mail service. So see people once a year at Chinese New Year, we'd travel out. Yeah. And so uh, I just basically developed a lot of these patterns that I teach, like in Zume or, you know, and other training yep. methods out of desperation because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there was no other way that I knew of <laughs> to reach those people except yeah. to multiply. So let's figure out how to do it, you know? And mm. so that was kind of a key turning point in yeah. how I changed everything I was doing. Wow. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing that you're going to be able to, I mean, you get it um, on the field where you're at and you can see that, oh, there is actually a different way that we could go about doing this. And, and, you know, it's been pretty effective and we're seeing, you know, movements around the world. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, before, there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask at the end, but I, I want to ask one question before that. Um, you know, as we're looking at, at, you know, unreached people groups and we're going out as missionaries, I think, I mean, I've heard some people talking about missionaries uh, to the church. Um, are there there ways or or that we can be missionaries to the church? Um, are we what what does that look like? And is that something that is happening now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll tell you how I think about it. I think about it. Well, to use an analogy, everybody has two legs, right? Yeah. And in some senses, at least at some level, I think most people are going to, you know, have one foot in each world, mm -hmm. right? You have one foot in the, you know, quote, Christian world, and you have one foot in those that aren't, you know, don't thank Christ. Yep. And God's going to call each of us. And a lot of it's going to depend on our environment, you know, as well, but God's going to call each of us to emphasize one of those more than the other. Mm -hmm. 
and and I think that's normal, good. I don't think that's something to worry about. Um, for me, God called me to put more emphasis on the foot, you know, in, yeah. in the last world. But yep. I don't doubt at all that he calls some people to put more emphasis in the kind of churched world. Yeah. Um, and so then it's figuring out how to effectively, you know, do whichever one of those or, you know, God calls you to emphasize more. There is no doubt which is harder. The churched world is going to be harder. Yeah. Um, but there is so much potential there if you can get a breakthrough. Yeah. Right. Yep. Because kind of the, I don't know, quote, installed base using kind of business terms is so large, it's, it seems a shame not to leverage it. Yep. But on the other hand, you know, so we really do need, we really do need people in both worlds. I'm grateful God called me to, you know, yeah. have the generally easier world yep. to, to work in because there's so much less deconstruction in a sense, because yeah. if people come to Christ, they realize they have to change everything. Yeah. Whereas if they've been or at least they think they have been, but or they actually have been serving Christ, but without having that knowledge that they have to change everything, whoa, it's way harder. Yep. So I'll, I put yes. it actually a diagram talking about that a little bit in mm. the book. Um, so maybe you can read a little more there. But. Yeah, that's going to be helpful. Go read the only one so you could you could see that. You know, I have a friend that was working. Uh, in the Horn of Africa and in a desert for eight years. Um, and now he's back and he's a missions pastor and a, a pastor of a, uh, a campus of, of their church. Um, and he, he often says, you know, I wish I could go back to the easy job yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, catalyzing new movements and, and something new working with people that don't yet know Jesus you just always found that much easier, and I, I do too, frankly. But um, and it's very important as we are engaging the church and community as we're opening people up. What does it look like to live a life for the kingdom and in the kingdom um, and for Jesus? It's great. Uh, so these last two questions I have. One is if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, um, is there anything that you – any advice that you would give yourself? Well – um, you know, that's uh, hard to imagine because so much of what I've learned, you know, came from making mistakes and all of that. <laughs> yeah. and so, of course, you wish you could avoid that. So I'd say, you know, read my book, go through the, <laughs> go through the training. Um, uh, I would probably... Um, give myself some advice about not relying on or assuming the necessity of, you know, organizations or, you know, agencies. Hmm. Um, because I think early on, my assumption was we have to change, you know, th those, those are necessary. So we have to, you know, probably change the ones that are to be more effective and which is related to your just previous question yeah. you know, about working in the church world versus yeah. not. And, um, you know, so that I would have learned earlier, it really is easier to start from zero yeah. than to re remake something in many cases. And that that might have saved me, you know, quite a quite a lot of pain mm. yeah. over over the years. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's good. My first response. Yeah, that's good. Um anything that you're reading or watching that you would recommend? 
I do uh, actually a lot of reading because a lot of people send me books mm-hmm. for input. But so I can't really mention the <laughs> ones I've been reading recently because they're not published yet. Yeah. <laughs> but um, maybe rather than giving specific titles, I'll just mention something that I think bears watching and thinking about. And that would be um, global societal trends, especially around um, communications Mm. and, you know, kind of all the um, new expressions of community that are forming around online, Mm -hmm. you know, online activity and um those are areas that definitely impact whether whether we're working in the church world or the non-church world they definitely impact how people are thinking how people are relating to one another how people are processing um information and um i think that as as a global church, we're starting to get better again at responding to um, technological development mm-hmm. opportunities. Yeah, um, you know, back when the printing press came into being, the church was you know an early innovator and user yeah. of that, and then it's like. Over time, we got less and less astute at you right. know at that, and now I think we're we're starting to have you know more capacity and capability in that. But I would love to see us do even better, yeah, you know, than we have been. And I think there are some amazing opportunities, and there are also new obstacles that we haven't probably broadly recognized yet, and yep. we'll save ourselves a lot of trouble if we can figure out those new barriers earlier rather than later. So yeah. that, that might be an area I would suggest people give some thought to. Yeah, that's really helpful uh, and really good. Um, you mentioned Zume and the only one anywhere else that people could find uh, your work, your training. Yeah. Well, um, it's not necessarily my training, but the 2414 community I mentioned. So if mm-hmm. somebody is, is a practitioner or wants to be, um the website for 2414 is 2414now.net 2414now.net and um that would be a way to get connected with people in your region or country that are practitioners so that you can you know learn from one another and begin to collaborate to figure out where the gaps are in your context and and address those. Um, if somebody has that kind of a heart and yet is not yet convinced of movement, then um, maybe an intermediate step might be to get involved with finishing the task. Mm-hmm. So the new iteration of that is just kind of just kicking off and is promoting movement, but open to participation by the much broader body of Christ. So if somebody isn't yet convinced to the point where they want to become a practitioner, but still wants to be maybe moving that direction and thinking about it more, that would be a softer, a softer, uh, more gradual way to wade into the water. Yeah. Excellent. Those are helpful. So, Curtis, thank you so much for joining us and being on today. I really appreciate it. Um, It was a great conversation. So thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us 
produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show. And just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.